0: Online at kfuo.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to Scripture in our Lutheran Confession of the Faith. On today's show, we are going to discuss why Concord Matters for the pastoral office. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Duel Parish of Emanuel West Point and St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And my companion, confessor, in conversation about this matter today is the Reverend Dr. David Maxwell. He is a professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. But before we get to Dr. Maxwell in our episode for today, I want to take a moment and to say thank you for those who offered prayers for my son and our family after he and I had an accident in our house that caused injury to him several weeks ago. Thanks be to God, my son is doing very well and well on his way to resuming his active toddler lifestyle. And so our family life is also returning to a more normal routine. But my wife and I are certainly deeply appreciative for all those who shared concern and offered prayers for his healing and for strength for our family. I also want to say thank you to my good friend, Pastor Peter Ill, who stepped in to host several weeks of Concord Matters for me so that I could attend to my family and still fulfill my parish pastor responsibilities. It was a tremendous blessing for me to step aside from the Concord Matters responsibilities for a little while, and so I'm profoundly thankful for Pastor Ill to take that on during what is always a busy time for all pastors in the holy seasons of Lent and into Easter. But as always, Pastor Ill is an excellent and ready confessor, And I'm so thankful for him and for his ready and excellent service to keep Concord Matters going through that. Thank you. Now, a note on our episode today. This episode was recorded with Dr. David Maxwell in person on the campus of Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, the day before the accident with my son, with the intent that it would air a few days later. However, the need to attend to things with my son meant I could not get the audio from that recording ready for KFU at that time. So in just a minute here, I will cut to that audio, but there are at least a couple of references to the time of the church year that we were in at that time, which was six weeks ago now. But I think this is still an excellent topic and episode with Dr. Maxwell, and so I'm pleased to share it with you now. So this is why Concord Matters for the pastoral office. Dr. Maxwell, welcome back to Concord Matters.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here.
0: Yes, it is a pleasure to have you on the show here today, and I say welcome back because you've been on the show before, though you've not been on with me as the host. Previously, you were on with one of the former co-hosts of the show, Charlie Henriksen, who actually first had me on as a guest as well, but a pleasure to have you on, especially because you were one of my professors when I was a student here at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis, where we are doing this show today. So I want to thank you and my alma mater for the opportunity to do this show here today in a place that prepares pastors for ministry in the church, which to transition then into setting up this episode today, I said in the introduction that we're going to talk about why Concord matters for the pastoral office. And this episode comes from a paper you wrote several years ago now, back in 2008, I believe it was, and had presented the paper at the Congress on the Lutheran Confessions, which that year was examining the theme Pastoral Theology in the Light of the Lutheran Confessions. Now, in 2008, I was still a student here at the seminary. I didn't graduate until 2010. And so I had probably even just headed out on my vicarage assignment in Louisiana when you were presenting this paper. So I wasn't there when the paper was first presented or anything. But I guess that's the real benefit of books and publications that preserve and make these papers available, is that, of course, with the show, but just in general as a person, I try to constantly be reading things with regard to the Lutheran confessions and especially with this show as we both read through the Lutheran confessions, but also have shows to discuss confessional topics, shall we say, which is to say that we deal with the text of the confessions and discuss it, but then also similar to that theme, we'll take topics in our Christian faith and life and discuss them in light of the Lutheran confessions. And so when I came across your paper uh, preserved in a book that you can get from Uh, The Congress on the Lutheran Confessions, you can find that online. Uh, When I came across your paper, I thought it was a really worthy topic to address on the show also. And of course, we have talked about the pastoral office many times as, as it has come up in the text of the Book of Concord. But to come at this sort of topically, I thought would be a real benefit for us as well. Now, I do want to start here, though, in defining what it is we're going to be examining here today, because when I say Concord matters for the pastoral office, I think most would maybe think uh, it would seem that's pretty obvious, right? You pastors, of course, would read the Lutheran confessions, and we promise in our ordination and installation to guide all our preaching and teaching according to them, but we're not necessarily talking about why Concord matters, why the confessions matter for the pastor as a person, although that's certainly a worthy topic also, and perhaps I'll take that up some other time. But what I liked about your paper and what I want to discuss with you here today is actually made more clear if I just read the title you gave it, which is The Function of the Pastoral Office in the Lutheran Confessions. So go ahead and lay out for us, Dr. Maxwell, what is it you mean by the function of the pastoral office according to the Lutheran Confessions?
1: Yeah, well, thanks again. It's great to be here. And the paper you're referring to, I think the topic was I was supposed to talk about how the Lutheran confessions discuss the pastoral office and what they had to say about it. And I thought maybe a helpful way of starting would just be to start with Article Four of the Augsburg Confession, which is the article that talks about justifying faith, and then it moves into Article Five and it says to obtain such faith God instituted the office of preaching, giving the gospel, and the sacraments. And so I think that's sort of a helpful touchstone for us. Like, why do we have pastors? Well, the reason is that that's the way God has instituted it to create justifying faith. So it's really the justifying faith on the part of the hearers that is the goal of the pastoral office.
0: Okay, so Article 4, that article we always talk about as the article upon which the church stands or falls so naturally everything, and especially the pastoral office, as you well laid out for us, will relate to that important goal of addressing justifying faith. So definitely an important place to start in talking about the function of the pastoral office. Are there other ways the Lutheran confessions talk about the function of the pastoral office in relation to that important goal of serving justifying faith?
1: Well, so one of the issues that comes up in a number of places throughout the confessions is the issue of... uh, certainty or doubt and so one of the problems that believers face is that they can be faced with doubt about well what does god really think about me like well he doesn't know what i did you know this sort of a thing and i just want to point out a couple of places where this theme of certainty versus doubt pop up so one of them is in the small catechism where it just starts off in the part on confession absolution confession has two parts first that we confess our sins and second, that we receive absolution, that is forgiveness, from the pastor as from God himself. Not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. Okay, so there you see the theme of not doubting, but firmly believing. So it's important for the confessions to inculcate a certainty in people on, about the forgiveness of sins. Now, I suppose... You could ask, well, why is that? Why are they so concerned about certainty? I mean, because I don't think what they're trying to do is to encourage people to, to like whip up a lot of confidence. Like, so I believe that my sins are forgiven, but I don't do. I firmly believe. I, I think that's the wrong approach. That's not really what they're after here. What they're after is to address a couple of sort of natural sources of doubt that you might encounter or think about, and one of which is. Well, the pastor's just a human being. So, how is it that he can tell me what God thinks of me? I mean, who is he? And so, that's one that the pastor's a human being. And then the other problem is that the pastor is a sinful human being, at that, right? So, that makes it even worse. So, how can I really trust? You know, the pastor says God forgives me, but how can I trust that? And the uh, uh, let me just, uh, while we're in the small catechism, refer to further on in the explanation of the Office of the Keys. What do you believe by these words? I believe that when the called ministers of Christ deal with us by his divine command, in particular when they exclude openly unrepentant sinners from the Christian congregation and absolve those who repent of their sins and want to do better— This is just as valid and certain even in heaven as if Christ our dear Lord dealt with us himself. So there again, the answer to the question of who's the pastor to forgive sins, well, he's not forgiving sins on the basis of his own person or authority. He's doing it because Christ put him there to do that.
0: And that is something that, as you talk about certainty, which I think is a really key and distinctive Lutheran teaching, especially for Luther himself, that we can be certain that we have the forgiveness of sins. But as you talk about that Christ put the pastor there to do that work of the forgiveness of sins, of course, in the stead and by the command of Christ, as we pronounce in the absolution, I think there's another matter that comes up sometimes, which relates to this matter of certainty and what the pastor is there to do. And that is that we sometimes encounter this mindset in our present age that says, well, I don't really need a pastor. I know that I'm forgiven by God. And so I can just go to God directly myself. Now, of course, that thinking has always been there throughout history, but at times I think maybe it's more prevalent in our current time and culture, but maybe that's just a skewed perception because we're living in it now. I don't know, but it does seem to me just in how little people make use of things like private confession absolution or even call their pastor when they're in the hospital or coming to their pastor for pastoral care when they're facing struggles in life. And sure, without a doubt, there are various things influencing that from multiple different directions. But I think in a lot of ways, Christians, and I'll even be specific and say Lutherans, live like they don't really even need a pastor. And some of that, I think, is what you talked about, in that a pastor is a human being, and who is he, let alone he is a sinner up there. Well, he is the one that Christ put there. But I think part of it is also this mindset that says, well, I don't really need a pastor. I can just go right to God. Even if they wouldn't come right out and say it and put it that way, and I think a lot of Lutherans wouldn't, they generally know that God tells us he is the one that gives us pastors, and so they know they need pastors. Of course, there are a lot of other parts of Christianity out there, and maybe even some among Lutherans that aren't so sure you need pastors. They probably wouldn't distinguish between pastors and people in the pew much at all, and I think we'll come back to that and talk about that here in just a bit. But there are these ways that even we as Lutherans, who know that God gives us pastors, might act as if we don't need pastors because we don't want to bother him, and besides, we can just go right to God. But I think that mindset maybe cheats us of some of the certainty that we have in a pastor that Christ puts there for us, right?
1: Right. So, of course, you can go directly to Christ in prayer and ask for the forgiveness of sins as we do in the Lord's Prayer. The issue is, and this is something I think that the confessors were very well aware of, is the propensity for the devil to want to sow doubt. Okay, so if you pray for forgiveness and, oh, well, I know God forgives me, well, how do you know? I mean, well, because I read the Bible and it says he forgives everyone, but does he send some people to hell? Well, yeah, he does. I mean, so then you start wondering, it's very easy to wonder exactly where you personally stand. I mean, you know God wants to forgive sinners. You also know that some people end up going to hell. So what you really need in a case like that is you need him just to tell you, right? Not to leave you like, here's a book of principles, you read it and figure it out. I mean, that's, that's not going to be comforting. What's going to be comforting is if he just comes right out and says, okay, here's what I think of you. Here's what I'm going to do with you. Here's what, what I'm going to do with your sense. And so that's why he instituted the pastoral office, because when the pastor is giving absolution, I'm thinking primarily in in terms of the confession absolution that we do in church, but you could extend this to preaching and other forms of giving the gospel too, that that's God himself telling you what he's going to do with you.
0: Yeah, and I think that's key. I use kind of the example, I do winemaking as kind of a hobby on the side, and I was actually just starting a new batch of Cabernet Sauvignon last night, and I was at this point where I was kind of questioning, you know, I had the recipe and I had some resources there, but I was constantly questioning myself and it's like in isolation, I even just thought, well, I just need someone objective outside of myself to tell me, yes, this is you're doing it right here, right? Because I'm, I'm even subjectively questioning even what's in black and white in front of me as to the right process to do it. And so that was happening even in just my wine making last night. And then you brought in, you know, the devil constantly afflicting us, right? yeah, it's right there in black and white. It's in scripture. We know it to be true. But whenever we're in isolation, subjectively, he just works on us, especially the devil and gets all that anxiety going in us. And we begin to question even what we know to be certain. And so that objective role of the pastoral office to be that objective external voice that says, no, this is true and certain, right? And I think that that's a key Lutheran distinctive as well. And of course. God institutes it in his holy word to give the pastoral office for that very purpose, I think. And so then getting back then into the function of the pastoral office and giving that certainty, where do we find that certainty that this pastor, even though he's a sinful human being and fallen, where do we get that certainty that he is speaking for God himself?
1: Well, the scripture text that the catechism refers to is John 20, and I'm going to read this just out of the catechism here. This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20, the Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So that's, we understand that to be what pastors are doing because the pastors are a continuation of that office. And if the pastor forgives sins, he's not doing it on his own behalf. He's doing it in the place of Christ. So the way that plays out then in the Augsburg Confession and in the Apology is the call of the church becomes important here. And so I, if I can just refer to Apology 7 and 8, where they actually raise the same question that I raised earlier about the pastor is just a human being, so who can you know, who is he to forgive sins? And here's the way the Apology answers it. It says, nor does this detract from the efficacy of the sacraments when they are distributed by the unworthy. I mean, so now we're talking about like pastors who don't even believe, right? So it doesn't, that doesn't detract from the efficacy of the sacraments because, uh, Apology 7 8 says, they represent the person of Christ on account of the call of the church and do not represent their own persons, as Christ himself testifies in Luke 10 whoever listens to you listens to me. So the way that someone's put into the office, is through the call of the church, and then once their job is to deliver the absolution to people, by extension also preaching and sacraments in general. But they're really making a really strong uh, strong point in apology 7 and 8, because they're considering the case of what if the pastor's not even a believer? And they're saying, even then, because it's precisely because he's not representing himself, but he's representing Christ, even if he's an unbeliever, it still works, and you can still be confident in it.
0: Which becomes really important for that relationship to be understood, both in the extending of the call to a pastor and that that's what you're asking him to do. But then also on the other side, as we sadly see far too often in this world of when a pastor falls into sin and maybe even destroys his ability to continue on serving in the ministry, sometimes there's a real wrestling for folks on that end as well to question the validity again of the work that he did among them in Word and Sacrament, right? Talk about that relationship a little bit more between pastor and people and why this is so important for the, as you say, the comforting of the doubting conscience.
1: Well, so my actual area of expertise is early church. So if I can do this from the perspective of an early church incident.
0: Absolutely. We, we love that on the show.
1: So, there was a controversy in the fourth century called the Donatist Controversy, which was about the, it was really about baptism, not confession absolution. But it's the same problem here. So what had happened was in about the year 300, there's this empire-wide persecution of the church. And the way that the persecution went was they weren't necessarily going to kill the Christians, but the Roman soldiers would show up at your church and they'd say, hand over the holy books. Because they had the Bible bound in different volumes. It wasn't all kind of put together in one yet. And so hand over the holy books. And some priests did it and some didn't. And so if you did hand over the holy books, well, there were a group of people who were kind of strict in their moral outlook, led by a guy named Donatus, who took the view that, well, if you hand over the holy books, you've lost the Holy Spirit, by definition, because you betrayed Christ. And so if you've lost the Holy Spirit, well, then you can't give the Holy Spirit. So what that means is anyone you baptize isn't really baptized. And so you have like, that's in 300. So you have the whole century there for this thing to bubble around. And now you got a whole bunch of people who are, have been baptized by these priests called Trotitor priests, because they had handed over the holy books. And the question is, are the people that these priests baptize, are they baptized or not? And Donatus said no, and St. Augustine said, yeah, they are. And St. Augustine's argument was actually they're baptized because it's the word of God that makes the baptism, not the holiness of the priest. Okay, so that is the way that controversy sort of plays out in the fourth century. And so the Lutheran confessions pick this up. And this is actually the point of Article 8 in the Augsburg Confession that likewise, Although the Christian church is, properly speaking, none else than the assembly of all believers and saints, yet because in this life many false Christians, hypocrites, and even public sinners remain among the righteous, the sacraments, even though administered by unrighteous priests, are efficacious all the same. For Christ himself indicates in Matthew 23, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. And then it says, Condemned, therefore, are the Donatists, and all others who hold a different view. Okay, So Lutherans are siding with Augustine on this question, that the sacraments are good because of God's word, not because of the holiness of the priests.
0: Which connects, I think, back into what you read from the small catechism, where earlier you quoted the response to what is confession. And you said that we receive absolution, that is, forgiveness from the pastor, as from God himself, not doubting, but firmly believing that by it our sins are forgiven before God in heaven. And you link that certainty with what you then read with from where is this written? This is what St. John the Evangelist writes in chapter 20. The Lord Jesus breathed on his disciples and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. I mean, it's really Quite interesting and ironic. You talk about how with the Donatists, the idea was that taking away the holy books takes away the Holy Spirit, but it is Jesus who by his word conveys the Holy Spirit on his disciples and all come after him. So the point all along really should be obvious and quite comforting that the Holy Spirit and forgiveness and all the gifts are conveyed through the word and that's where the authority lies, right?
1: Right. And this is actually a point where we do agree with other church bodies like the Roman Catholics are on board on this point. Uh, This actually became like a real pastoral issue when I was teaching a class at Notre Dame. I did my PhD there, and so as part of our graduate studies package there, you teach a class for them. And so we were actually covering the Donatist controversy in the class, and one of the students came up to me after class and said, I was baptized by a priest who later became a DJ. Am I still baptized? (laughs) I was like, okay, this this is an actual issue. That people, and I don't know about being a DJ being equivalent to losing the Holy Spirit, but in any case, you know, people really do face this kind of a question, if, especially if they were baptized by a pastor that has some kind of problem.
0: Yeah, I've encountered that even within my own pastoral ministry more than I ever would have imagined back when I was one of your students here at the seminary. You know, you kind of learn about all these things in theory, but then that's where it's a real benefit to have this to draw on. And again, I think even the benefit of the Lutheran confessions as well, that it informs our practice that when you get out there and you do encounter it, you see, oh, wow, this is actually utterly practical, right? Because people do really wrestle with these questions about, well, this happened with such and such pastor when I grew up or in such and such denomination, I was baptized. Does that count here? And Just in the terms of the baptism, right? What is the thing that we usually do? We go back, well, what were the words that were said? Isn't it a triune God, right? And so when we talk about, you know, of course, in terms of the sacraments, and and we talked about this on the show sometimes, you know, for Luther and some Lutherans, that absolution, the office of the keys, the forgiveness is kind of that third sacrament. But all of them are connected with the forgiveness of sins. And ultimately, once again, what we're looking for is that certainty that the Word of God is active through my pastor, sinful, fallen human being that he is, right?
1: Right, absolutely. And I it might be worth pointing out that the desire for certainty in Lutheran theology is not shared by other churches. I'm thinking particularly in the Roman Catholic Church, the Council of Trent says that you should not be certain of your salvation, that it would be presumptuous of you to claim that you're certain that you're saved. So I think it's you know, it's an interesting question. Like, why do we feel that you ought to be certain? And what would we say to this objection that it's presumptuous to assume that you're saved?
0: Yeah. Well, talk more about that then, because I do think that that is a very worthy question, especially even as you consider, once again, broad American Christianity with kind of American evangelicalism and so forth, that I don't necessarily see the drive for certainty there either. Again, I think they'll talk, different than Roman Catholics, obviously, they'll talk you know, about the certainty that they have of what Scripture says and so forth, but that desire for the certainty just doesn't seem to be there. So talk a little more about why for Lutheran certainty is so important here.
1: Well, I think fundamentally the issue is Lutherans believe that we're saved by God's promise. So he promises, I forgive you your sins, and that when you have that, you have salvation. So if you were then to turn around and doubt your salvation you're actually that's not humility that's doubting the promise of God you're calling God a liar okay so there's a sense in which in Lutheran theology that certainty just flows out of the fact that well it's God's promise he's going to keep it and doubt would mean like I'm calling into question God's promise so now that's not to condemn people who experience doubt it's just to say Like, why do Lutherans feel like certainty is a possibility? Well, it's because your salvation is based on God's promise and we can trust him to keep his promise. Whereas, if you've got a theology in which you have to cooperate somehow, then you can see how certainty of salvation would seem presumptuous. Because if I said, if I believe that my salvation depends on Jesus giving me grace and then I take that grace and I do something with it and then I'm rewarded and salvation then is a reward for whatever it is I do with that grace, well then, if I said, I'm certain of salvation, that's like saying, I'm certain I'm going to do a great job and God's going to be really impressed. Well, no one would say that, right? I mean, that's, that does seem presumptuous. So what it really boils down to is what is it that saves you and what is your confidence resting on? And so for Lutheran, the confidence is resting on the promise of God. And that actually has pastoral implications in terms of how do you use the sacraments. So let me go back to the baptism as an example. In the large catechism, Luther is talking about like, well, when the devil tempts you and he tries to cause doubt in your salvation and things like this, then here's how you use your baptism. What you do is you say, I am baptized, and if I'm baptized, I have the promise that I will be saved body and soul. So your baptism is functioning as God's promise to you, and that's how you use it. You rely on that promise.
0: So it sounds like then, even how we use the sacraments seems to be a little bit of a distinction that you use the words, you use your baptism. And I think that does come out in the small catechism really well, especially that fourth question with baptism, right, is that it would lead us in our daily life Whereas, again, just the example of Roman Catholics, it's just something that you do just by sheer observation. I don't know. Talk a little more about that then, how this influences our Christian life, this certainty and playing forth in our Christian life.
1: Well, what it means is you have this external reference point that's outside of your life that you're relying on. So in practice, what it can mean is that Christians can put up with a lot of turmoil, in their life, and without that calling their salvation into question, because their salvation is safely above and beyond all of the turmoil of life, because it rests in the promise of God, which is given to you from outside of yourself, in the words of the pastor, in the absolution, in baptism, in communion, and preaching, and so forth. So this leads to an aspect of Lutheran spirituality called, well, in German, it's Anfechtung, And it means like you're under a spiritual attack. And so it's Luther describes it as this feeling like God is against you, like Jacob is wrestling with God. And and so you're fighting with God and it's this horrible thing and and you feel like God has abandoned you. and, And yet Luther is also able to turn around and describe the same phenomenon, the same event as a case of oh, it's just like a father playing with his child and he's got an apple and he hides it from the child and then he gives it back to the child and he's just playing. So how can you describe the same event as you're fighting with God and you're suffering hell and oh, God's just playing with this little kid. But both of those things are true. One's true from our perspective and the other is true from God's perspective. And so I think what that, you know, where that leads is a kind of I guess you could say bold sort of spirituality where we're not going to be swayed by the turmoil of life or the temptations or doubts that we experience. They'll let all that stuff happen because it can't touch the promise that we have from God. We're going to trust in that promise and not in like how well things seem to be going. And so this is why I think you got so many hymns like a mighty fortress that sort of express that kind of confidence in God. So that's uh One way, it seems to me, that this stuff plays out.
0: Yeah, and well, I think, again, speaks to that it can only be viewed that way when we have that certainty in the promise, which you've highlighted really well. And I, I like bringing in Jacob wrestling with God there, and I follow the one-year lectionary in my dual parish, and this past Sunday we have Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament and then the Canaanite woman yeah. in the gospel reading. And what's true in both of those, kind of different circumstances, obviously, but what's true in both of those is that they have that certainty that they can come to God and that ultimately he has their best interests in mind. And that's the that's the certainty we have. All right, where well, we really need to go ahead and take a break here. But on the other side of the break, we'll continue talking with Dr. David Maxwell and look at how law and gospel relate to the certainty that we have in the function of the pastoral office and how our Lutheran confessions lead us in understanding this. So join us for that on the other side of the break. You're listening to Concord Matters on KFUO. Hi, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. Are you an investor looking to support the bold and loving work of LCMS churches? Is your church or organization ready to do bold and loving work? This year, we have a ripe opportunity to bring Christ to a hurting world. Discover the role you can play in this great work. Call 800-843-5233 or visit lcef.org. That's 800-843-5233, lcef.org. Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with the Reverend Dr. David Maxwell, who is Professor of Systematic Theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. And we are talking about why Concord matters for the function of the pastoral office. In the first half of the show, you set up for us why it's important for us to have authorized representatives of Christ to find that certainty that the forgiveness is spoken to us to, to guard against doubt. One of the things that you talk about that I think connects in with this is you talk about the distinction of law and gospel playing into this. Talk a little bit about that for us here.
1: Yeah, so when I'm talking about the pastoral office is there to provide certainty, then I think that's kind of more in the gospel realm. There also is a sense, though, from the law perspective, that you don't want to, like, blaspheme, right? And, there's a, and if you claim to speak for God and you're not speaking for Him, Well, that's a problem. So even the Pharisees know that only God can forgive sin. So there is a sense of recognizing that there needs, if at least if you understand what we're claiming that pastors do, then there needs to be some kind of authorization because they're not, because they're actually claiming to be an ambassador, if you will, an authorized representative. And so the only way that that's not blasphemy is if they actually are authorized. (laughs) I mean, so that's part of the role of the office uh, as well.
0: So when it comes to the pastoral office today, of course, the pastor stands there on the authority of Christ and the authority is grounded in Christ's word conveyed in what we call the office of the keys in the small catechism, as we covered earlier. But to be certain that the guy up in front of us is not blaspheming when he forgives sins, we point to the call, as you said. But how does that, the call, correlate to being certain he has the office of the keys?
1: Well, so the way that it's described in the treatise on the power and primacy of the Pope is that, well, first of all, if I can just back up and give a little bit of a background of what's going on in the 16th century that gives rise to that document. So you have the Pope refusing to ordain or refusing to authorize Lutheran ordination. And at that time, I mean, if the Pope doesn't want you to be ordained, you're not going to be ordained, because it's the Pope who controls that. And so what the treatise says is, well, the keys are given principally and immediately to the church, which means that the church, and by principally and immediately, they don't mean first they're given to Peter and then to the church. They're given to the church, and then therefore the church has the right to administer the gospel. Okay, The Pope is not allowed to remove that because the church is the possessor of the keys. And so the now the consequence of the church possessing the keys is not that everyone goes around preaching and ministering the sacraments. The consequence is that the church then has the authority to call pastors, and then those pastors are authorized by Christ to speak for him in the absolution and in baptism and so forth.
0: So even though the church is the possessor of the keys— They're not authorized to just do this on their own?
1: Well, so Walther points out that those two are distinct things, that the priesthood of all believers, all Christians, are priests in that sense, and then the pastoral office is a different thing. And what I would point to to support Walther on this is the passage that I referenced in Apology 7 and 8 is actually envisioning the case of what if the pastors an unbeliever. I mean, I think it says unrighteous or something like that, or hypocrite. But like, what if the pastor is an unbeliever? Well, it's not, so the pastoral office is not just somebody doing priesthood of all believer things. I mean, because you could actually have an unbeliever who's not in the priesthood of believers, still in there doing it. So it's a different kind of thing. It's a different kind of authorization.
0: So can the priesthood of all believers just put in the office whoever they want then?
1: Oh, well, yeah. So at this point, we need to make a distinction between God's arrangement and then whatever human arrangements we might make. And so I think the answer from the treatise would be, yeah, I, I mean, a group of Christians has the authority to call a pastor. Now, in the Missouri Synod, we've made a human arrangement that congregations should only call pastors who are certified by the seminaries, and so we've provided for pastoral education. But at the same time, we recognize that that is a human arrangement. And so if a congregation were to call someone who's not certified, let's say, I mean, we would grant that the guy's still a pastor, but it might call into question the membership in the Synod. But the issue is on the human arrangement side, not the divine institution
0: side. So, the authority comes from Christ and his word, and the keys are given to the church and conveyed in the call of the church, according to our human arrangement. But can the lady forgive sins?
1: Well, I think that, I suppose, uh, if you've listened uh, this far into the program, you might suspect I'm going to say the lady don't forgive sins, but that's actually not what I'm going to say. The lady can forgive sins as well, but they do it in a slightly different way, and so To illustrate that, what I'd like to refer to is the formula for absolution in the hymnal. So I'm looking at the Lutheran service book in Divine Service 1. If anybody wants to follow along, it's on page 151. And we've got two different forms of the absolution. And so the one on the left is the form that the pastor uses. And then one on the right is the form we use if a non-ordained person is leading the service. And so if you look at the one on the left, the pastor one, I'll just, let me just read that. Almighty God in his mercy has given his son to die for you and for his sake forgives you all your sins. As a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I therefore forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So there's a couple of features I'd like to point out in this uh, absolution formula. So one is that the pastor is kind of adopting an I to you. So the I forgive your sins. So he's actually stepping into the place of Christ. And furthermore, he says, as a called and ordained servant of Christ and by his authority, I forgive your sins. So there is this claim of I'm doing this by Christ's authority. Now, that, I don't believe, is intended to exalt the pastoral office. I mean, sometimes you hear this kind of objection, that this sort of theology of the pastoral office is just because pastors just want to feel important or something, and so this is elevating them. Well, actually, it's just the opposite, because the whole point about saying by his authority is to say, I have no authority to do this on my own. The only reason I can do this is because he put me here to do it. And I think that's the sense of by his authority. He's acting in the stead of Christ. Now let me read you the other one. The Declaration of Grace on the right-hand side says, In the mercy of Almighty God, Jesus Christ was given to die for us, and for his sake God forgives us all our sins. To those who believe in Jesus Christ, he gives the power to become the children of God and bestows on them his Holy Spirit. May the Lord who has begun this good work in us bring it to completion in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so if I can just point out a few features of this formula. We have the person declaring grace is including himself with the congregation. He's not standing over against them in the place of Christ. He's saying that God forgives us all our sins and he gives us the power to become the children of God. And so you and you don't have the language of called and ordained, and you don't have the language of authority of Christ or in the stead of Christ or, or that sort of thing. So that's the difference. Now, the question is, does the Declaration of Grace actually f- convey the forgiveness of sins? And the answer is yes. Because if you tell someone God has forgiven our sins and the person believes it, well, they're believing the promise of God, and it's the Word of God delivering the grace and forgiveness. Okay, So it's the difference is not that the pastor one forgives sins and the lay one doesn't. The difference is just that you've got this added thing about operating in the stead of Christ in the pastor one. And as we talked about before, it's like, well, okay, why is that important? Well, a couple reasons. One is, in case the pastor's an unbeliever, I mean, you know, or scandalizes people, that it's making clear that this is not coming from him. But then also the fact that it, I don't know, just— Pastorally, I think it's just easier for people to fight off the kinds of doubt that they are likely to have if you actually can say, Well, no, Jesus himself said this to me. It's not somebody telling me about what Jesus thinks, it's Jesus telling me what he
0: thinks. Yeah, and it comes out, I think, also in terms of sermons. Sometimes you get this, and this, I think, does become a very scandalous thing, especially. Well, sometimes for Lutherans, but especially when you have, again, American evangelical friends or folks come in from the outside and they see this and they say, again, like we talked in the first half of the show, well, who's that pastor? who's he think he is? You know, that he can say that. And I think the move, especially the last several generations, is to be the more inclusive. So again, I say, you know, I think this happens in terms of sermons in the sense that, traditional, you know, I read a lot of CFW Walther sermons, for instance, and CFW Walther will just point right at him and it's, he's speaking for God when he's doing it. But I think the move of late has to be that more inclusive, almost like a declaration of grace that I'm included in there with you. And again, that's, it's not that it's not true, but what's the purpose you're serving there? And I think that what you brought out there is, it's really helpful to have that pointed. This is Jesus speaking to you. And so it does become a matter of even terms of pastoral care that you're providing for them. But then in terms of, so if the declaration of grace is good enough, and if the laity can speak that and share that, talk a little more about what is the benefit then of that absolution from the pastor and the function of the pastoral office?
1: Well, see, I guess I, when I hear the phrase good enough— That's a phrase that seems like it's trying to limit what it is that God has to give here. And while it's true that both formulations give the forgiveness of sins, there is that speaking for Christ aspect. And I've talked about how that contributes to certainty and helps you better fight off doubt that you might have. But I mean, there's other conclusions or implications you could draw out from that. So for example, why go to church on Sunday? You know, why not just read your Bible at home? Well, because, you know, if you go to church on Sunday, you're going to hear Jesus speaking to you. You won't just be hearing about him. So I think it's useful to think about that as well, just for why go to church.
0: Which I think is a really helpful question, especially in this day and age where we're looking, you know, the electronic means of going to church and so forth. And I'd like to ask, why does the question good enough even come up? as opposed to what does Christ have to give us there? Maybe that's a better place to focus.
1: Yeah, I think so, because it's not like the Christian attitude is that we want to get by with the bare minimum that's required, right? I mean, that's not the impression you get when Jesus is, in Matthew 28, is giving the Great Commission. He says, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded them, or keep what I think would be even better translation of the Greek there keep everything that I've commanded them. There's a sense that the stuff that Jesus tells us is stuff we want to keep. We want to hold on to it. We don't want to lose it. And so just the basic mentality of, well, isn't that good enough? That's just a different spirit, it seems to me.
0: So then even as we think about Jesus's institution of the pastoral office, and maybe here we can bring in some other scriptural points where he talks about this as well, but It's his gift to the church to give us the pastoral office, right? Not to negate the priesthood of all believers or even speaking forgiveness to one another, but it's his gift to the church then.
1: That's right, yeah. Because that's how he established the spread of his word. Yeah, so, you know, and again, I want to distinguish it from, it's not like trying to make the pastor seem great, it's the pastor's a servant, and the authority that the pastor has is for the sake of the certainty of the sheep. It's not for his own, you know, ego or something like that. But he does have it, and because Christ instituted this. And maybe we can talk a little bit about more you mentioned some other scripture texts. So what are some of the scripture texts that we recognize as him doing this? Well, John 20 is the first one that comes to my mind. Whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven which Lutherans read that as an institution text. Another one would be Matthew 28 with the institution of baptism. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the interesting thing about Matthew 28 is you get to the end and it has this line, and behold, I'm with you always to the very ends of the age. And so the implication seems to be that Jesus envisions that baptisms will continue to the end of the age because that's put in there right with all the baptism stuff. And so there you have in the New Testament itself at least a hint that Jesus is not just establishing something for the first-generation Christians. He's establishing something that he's envisioning will continue through the ages. And so we understand the pastoral office to be part of that because the pastors are the ones who baptize people.
0: Yeah, excellent point. Uh, But in talking about what Christ instituted with the office, I want to be sure to address this idea too, and that is that there's a bit of a tension in how the pastoral office is viewed that we see go on around us in Christianity, well, since the Reformation, I guess. So what I mean is you've talked a couple of times now about various things that the confessions had in view, like with the treatise and how what the Lutherans were addressing there was something with the papist understanding of the pastoral office becoming more than it had been instituted in Christ's own words. But then also brought in a few times the kind of American evangelical understanding, if you will, that maybe doesn't give enough respect to what Christ instituted with his own words. And I don't mean that they don't have a respect for the Word of God, they certainly do, but what I mean is, well, like with the Lord's Supper, I mean, they tend to ignore that Christ said is, right? And so they kind of do that with a pastoral office too, right? They will have maybe a better way to say it is just a low view of the office of holy ministry, a lower view than what Christ himself institutes and gives to his church. And so there's a tension going on there in Christianity. On the one hand, you have the view that this is just brother so-and-so up there. And we have to say, no, there is a distinct office that Christ has established here. And yet not to go too far the other way, too, and exalt it and make too much of it or give it more power than Christ gives in the institution of that office, right? So can you talk about that tension just a little bit there?
1: Right. I I mean, I don't know a better way to address a tension other than just to be specific about what the pastor's authorized to do. I mean, he's authorized to forgive and retain sins, in the words of the small catechism, you know, as opposed to authorized to establish uh, ceremonies, or I'm just thinking about some of the 16th century issues here that they were dealing with, that the Pope was insisting that there are certain ceremonies you have to follow in order to be Christian, and that in order to be in like one church, you all have to have the same similar ceremonies, whether that be like what day you fast, or what kinds of vestments the priests wear, or these kinds of things. That's not part of the purview of pastoral authority nor is something like like establishing laws, like civil laws. Now, that may be obvious in our American context because we've got pastors don't do that, but I mean, there is in Lutheran theology the notion that the office of pastor does not carry with it temporal authority, the authority of the sword, or I guess the way we put that in our context is they don't have the authority of the state, which, you know, if you're in a situation like medieval Germany in the 16th century. Well, that's not necessarily obvious because the Pope actually does have some. You know, he's got an army and, you know, stuff like that. So the Confessions were very, very interested and clear in defining what is part of the pastoral authority and what's not part of the pastoral authority because in their day, the office was given like too much. They were given the wrong kinds of authority. Yeah, so that kind of addresses the too much authority. But now how do you address... Well, I guess the other side is like too little of a view of the pastor. And so there again, it's kind of the same answer. The pastor's authority is to forgive sins. This is a huge deal because that's what creates faith and saves people. So ultimately, just saying what the pastor's authority is, is I think the way to negotiate that tension.
0: And again, I think as you've brought out really well for us, the Lutheran Confessions do really try to hone in in several different places and outlining what the authority and role of the pastoral office is, then, for that purpose of understanding what a gift this is from Christ to his church. And my mind was jumping even to uh, often attached to the large catechism, and we've gone through Luther's brief exhortation to go to confession. Of course, he has in mind there the individual confession and absolution which has once again fallen out of disuse in our church today, even as it had at his day already, Uh, and that's why he writes that. But my kind of paraphrased version of that is Luther basically says, if you knew what a gift this was, you'd run and you'd beat your pastor's door down and demand that he hear your confession in order to pronounce God's grace over you. And so that's what we're talking about here with this real gift that it is to the church, the comfort, the certainty that we have, right? Right. So then, as you've also talked about, and I want to come back to, you mentioned that the scriptures make clear that Christ grants his apostles authority to forgive sins, and you said that especially that institution of it extends to our pastors today, but how can our people in the pews be sure that that authorization does extend to their pastor today?
1: Well, I think this goes back to the treatise's point about the keys are given to the church. And so Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of them. So that means they have Jesus. I mean, and so everything that goes with that. And so that's going to mean they have the, I don't know if you want to say right or authority to have the word and sacraments carried out in their midst. And so that implies the authority to call a pastor. Now, historically, I mean, uh, this is a little weird, but historically, you can sort of see the office of apostle kind of coalescing with bishops and pastors. And what I have in mind is there is a treatise called the Didache, which is an it's the earliest church order document we have. So a church order document is a document that tells you how to do stuff. Like, here's how you do communion. Here's how you do baptism. So instructions. And... The Didache is, I, I want to say it's maybe second century. I, with these liturgical documents, the dating is always kind of questionable. But it's the earliest one we have. And so it has this, these interesting instructions like, what do you do if someone shows up and claims to be an apostle? What do you do if they show up and claim to be a prophet? Because what, apparently what's going on in the early churches, you had people traveling around claiming to be prophets and apostles, and the church was recognizing this. The didache does not say, throw them out. It actually envisions the possibility they might really be. So what do you do? And so it's real practical stuff like, well, if the prophet orders a meal in the spirit, then he's not a real prophet. If the apostle stays too long, like more than three days, he's not. I mean, so there, it's, it's a way of saying, like, don't let people take advantage of you. But one of the interesting comments that the didache will make is, you can watch how they use some of these titles interchangeably. And there's one point at which it says to you that the bishops and the deacons minister to you the ministry of the prophets and apostles. Okay, so what you're seeing is a real fluidity in all of these different terms for the office of the ministry. And even in the New Testament, you got bishops, you got presbyters, you have deacons, you, I mean, all kind of stuff. And they're, in, the, in the New Testament, they tend to be pretty fluid, used interchangeably. And you see that in the Didache as well, but there is a, but I don't know, I just see that as a, and I'm getting this from an article by Martin Charlemagne actually, but I see that as a connection between apostles and then later adherence of the office, like bishops and presbyters in the early church. So that would be kind of a historical example where you can sort of see it going.
0: Well, there's pretty, some pretty fascinating stuff in there, but uh, unfortunately with just about a minute here left, I want to give you an opportunity to give us your parting thoughts for why Concord matters for the pastoral office.
1: Well, so, I mean, again, I think it's helpful to keep in mind what are the main concerns that the book of Concord is raising when they appeal to the office of the ministry, and I think one of the main ones is this doubt versus certainty question, and that the office is God's way of helping you to not have to worry about your situation or what sins you did or whether you qualify for God's forgiveness or anything because the office is God's way of speaking directly to you telling you that he forgives your sins.
0: That is the Reverend Dr. David Maxwell. Thank you so much. It's been an honor to have you on Concord Matters today and confessing for us why Concord Matters for the function of the pastoral office. Of course, it's centered on that important article of our faith that we may obtain justifying faith. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.